Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for coming. I'm really excited to uh, to be here with some of really like a whole table of brilliant writers, um, all of whom are favorites. So, you know, and, and I'm really excited about um, Eugene's book, congratulations, and, and Karen's book, and, and everything Janice is doing. And so I'm going to read a little bit from uh, my book, Blind Spot, that we actually launched here um, earlier in the year. So this is kind of like a bookend reading for this, and so that's why I'm going to actually read, read a little bit from it. So, so um, you know, to also honor Janice's last reading in Los Angeles for a while. Right. So, okay. So anyway, so this is uh, this is my book, Blind Spot, and um, I'm just gonna start reading from it. I'm gonna read a little bit from um, the two sections that comprise the book. Okay. One section is called Hotel, and the other section is called Funeral. Um, part one, Hotel. One, failing to notice. Oh, and you, you can hear me, okay? Put it, put it up a little bit. A little closer to me. Okay. That's good. Thank you. Okay. Part one, hotel one. Failing to notice, and he put his hands out, flexed his fingers. There were lemons in the trees, and at that point, there was not much else about himself that he had to imagine. Just don't think. It will come. Just don't think. Still, that was flat thinking, and that was abusive behavior. And yet, this is what he ended up telling himself. There will be a war, a mistrial declared. Someone will have heard me. I was not myself. I wanted to scream to be a better man. And it continued that way for hours. There were hours then, hours in the dark, in the dark of the hotel. And in driving for hours to get to the hotel, there had been smoke and fire, and there had been something else. A tragedy that befell the world. A real and singular tragedy that will come out of the blue and befall the world. So much of it was made up, and this was in the summer, and there was no one else in the room. There was red in the room, however, and there was a pipe left on a table, and there was the sound of his heart beating. I knew I lived somewhere. He'd left his hat on the table, but what he couldn't have known was the one thing he might have found disturbing. He had to slow down. There is trouble in the room. He is looking around the room, trying to find his way back in. And in a minute or two, there will be a sound, his signal, and then there will be somewhere to go. But these events have to take place in a room. At the end of the street, and I thought it was like music. I thought it would be more like noise. I thought of many things, and those things that I thought of continued to bother me. I was at the end of my rope, at the end of my tether, and that was the way they dressed things up in those days. It was a beautiful summer's night. The air was cool. The hotel was a very beautiful place to be. All of the other guests thought so too. And then he tells himself a story. But I kept seeing the things that I was seeing, and the things that I was seeing were not mine. I had a bit from a book, and I had a bit from a story that had been told when I was very young. There was someone waiting for him in the lobby. He'd gone downstairs and was having a drink at the bar. He'd waited near the hotel lobby, waited in the bar just off the hotel lobby. He had the key to his room in his hand. He walked in the cool night air, and there was a breeze, and this was right at the beginning of events. It excited him to no end, realizing he'd come to the right place. And the hotel was indeed just the right place. For the first time in his life, he'd understood. He'd seen enough signs to know. 
Still, this was new. This was drinking at the hotel bar and waiting. A man in a tuxedo, a man in a long fur coat, a man with a gun in a hunting jacket, a man in a smoking jacket. The hotel was very large and very old and very discreet in its way, expensive, a place to go for people who wanted to get away from it all, a place to come famously for people to cure their ills. He sat in a chair in the lobby and read a newspaper and smoked a cigarette. Cigarette smoking was still very fashionable in those days when the hotel was built. There were pictures on the walls, and his room made sounds. Yet it was not the type of hotel one would bring, say, a family to on vacation, a very large hotel. But the stairs were there, and so was the lobby. And his room was there, and so was the lounge. And then the grounds outside, and the dining room, and the halls, and the bar. So far, all of the necessary elements for a hotel. Yes, the location would do. It would serve its purpose, even if it was obvious, and even if it had been done many times before. And that's the end of that part. And this is um, part two of funeral one. The funeral ended. It was after the funeral. There were cars parked along the grass, the long expanse of grass, and there was a golden moment. It was just the way it was supposed to be. It was splendid and beautiful. There was even someone. And the grass was green. And there were, other th and there were others there as well. Friends, associates, and relatives, and other people, strangers, if you will. He was handsome, had been even more handsome in life. He was always one for photos, for living, for looking handsome. It could have been a better life, though. He could have had better friends, associates. In short, he could have made better choices. He was there once, in the middle of the street, on the concrete pedestrian island in the middle of the street. He was waving his hands, gesturing somewhat wildly, humiliatingly, in a way, doing a kind of dance, almost a dance, trying to catch their attention, his friends, associates, the people he was supposed to be meeting for lunch. It was the middle of the day in the middle of the city, and there was no one else around. But somehow that's wrong, not exactly right. In fact, not at all the right way to put it. There was a ribbon around his neck, or around her neck, a red bag, or a green or red door, a guitar perhaps. It wasn't exactly clear. There was a ribbon around someone's neck, a red bag, or a green or red door. There was supposed to be a meeting for lunch. Not a meeting exactly, just good friends, associates, getting together for lunch. In fact, the food was delicious. The weather in the city had been great. His good friends, associates, sat around the table and talked the way good friends, associates, often do. But there was a kind of pressure in the air. Still, the consensus around the table was that the funeral had been handled expertly, had been handled in an expert manner. The consensus around the table was that the funeral could not have been handled any better, and they'd made a plan to meet that day, his good friends, associates. He was standing in the middle of the street, waving his hands, gesturing somewhat wildly, humiliatingly in a way, doing a kind of dance, almost a dance, trying to get their attention, his friends, associates. And he'd called her on the telephone. He'd asked her to come to the cafe or restaurant to meet with him. He'd arranged a meeting, and there was no telling how fast all of this occurred. But there were flowers, real flowers, mostly, and artificial ones, too. There was also a fire that day. A large explosion rocked the city. There were sirens in the distance. There was a major fire somewhere, and tragedy, and difficulties, and suffering. But they'd made a plan to meet for lunch. He stood in the middle of the street and waved his hands, gestured somewhat wildly, humiliatingly in a way, did a kind of dance, almost a dance. And there was something slightly pathetic about the way he moved, about what he was trying to accomplish then at that point, pathetic and humiliating in a way. 
He stood in the middle of the street and his arms were full. It was winter and he'd been shopping, doing holiday shopping, and his arms were full of bags and packages. It was cold and he was wearing a scarf. He'd seen her approach the cafe door, a red bag. There was a red bag, or maybe a green or red door. He tried to wave, he tried to get her attention, but he dropped what he'd been holding in his arms, bags, packages, perhaps a red bag, or maybe a box all over the street. The hearse arrived with the casket inside. It parked against the curb. The curb ran alongside a road, ran alongside a large expanse of grass. And there was no telling then, at that point, just how long the funeral would last. He is eating a sandwich after returning home from work. He's eating a sandwich at home after work, and it is an ordinary evening or afternoon. He's eating dinner or lunch on an otherwise ordinary evening or afternoon. It is an evening or afternoon that could have started, that could not have started in a more ordinary way. And there is no one on the street, not at that point. It was a beautiful day in the middle of the city. He'd gone to get lunch, a sandwich, and had unexpectedly ended up in the exact same restaurant or cafe. In fact, in the very same restaurant or cafe. He'd been hoping to meet his friends, associates, or he'd been hoping to meet someone else, by surprise perhaps. The funeral had been, had been a success, was more or less successful in its way. In fact, the funeral had been well-planned, well-conceived, well-thought-out. And many people had attended the funeral, friends, associates, and relatives, and others. There were many people there in the cemetery at one time. Thank you. Is that good? Okay. Um, so I'm going to read uh, an essay that is only relevant today because it's called Dear Benny, and we're celebrating Dear Cyborgs, but otherwise are not related. <laughs> um, it's about my dog. In the book I am writing, there is a scene that describes a group of pigeons committing suicide. That is, the pigeons, distressed at having their home demolished, have become depressed and have learned how to jump in front of oncoming cars more, most efficiently to kill themselves or to simply stop eating and fall to the ground. The piles of pigeons, a constant reminder of the efficacy of deaths and the ephemerality of life. In this book, which deals with many things, including the apocalypse as a state of anticipation, memory, the difference between ontology and perception, empathy, I realize that most of all the book was some way to process both the directly given and silently inherited traumas we receive in our lives, and the ways in which we can learn from animals urgently and slowly how to press on, how to know, how to stand still in the intolerable weather, and to appreciate the tears and to stand in the bathtub cold and wet and heavy because the trust is stronger than the general conditions of life and because the curvature of intimacy ignites a willingness to sit still. The novel started with a series of images that I could not get out of my head, namely a girl washing blood off of her hands and a cat. But the images refused to coalesce into a narrative, and as I was still dealing with the aftermath of my mother's death and my changing relationship to language, the words would not organize themselves, not yet. Then, when I was visiting Brenda Ajima in New York, her cat, Mr. Bungie, jump-started my novel by talking to me in my dreams. And then, after my return to Los Angeles, arriving at my front door in a dream covered in blood. In that dream, I answered the door, and there was Mr. Bungie. He entered the house, and I managed to snatch him and bring him to the bathroom sink, where I washed off the blood, and then washed the blood off of my hands. 
Recently, I have been thinking about the birds lined up in neat increments and the persistence of animals and the cold and the wisdom of cats and all the reasons to love rather than to give in to despair and the circling hawks and my dogs and all the dogs and the price of longing and desire. And I'm worried about the cat that has stopped coming by at night and I'm worried about my dog Benny who turned 13 years old this year and I'm looking for the birds in the sky but sometimes they are not there. And I'm thinking about all the different ways of knowing and I'm so grateful for the wisdom and generosity of animals and for all the different ways of knowing that they can bring into our lives and what we can know only by attempting to be as generous as they are with us. And I can't stop crying and I can't forget the ways in which the intimacy we have with animals is the capacity to live. And the ways in which we can communicate with each other is not only the failure of language and the gap between us is the reason for desire and the desire is to exist and to exist together. Isn't every story one of intimacy, then distance, then intimacy, then distance again? Remember that your ghosts and your memories are not only your past, but also your future, and that in the end, what we have is each other, already ghosts, already holding each other, already so far apart. What is the benefit of rationality or irrationality when an emotion does not equate with distance, and distance does not equate with the amount of love that exists or doesn't exist between two creatures? I can't articulate the distance between myself and my dog, nor the other closeness. This distance between us as displaced as the particles of sky that make up the sky. And today, over here, the sky is no longer blue and it is windy. And through my window, while listening to Something on Your Mind by Karen Dalton, the leaves and branches are waving in the wind. And because the window is closed and because the music is playing, I cannot hear the swaying, but I can see it. And that, too, is a sort of untraversable distance. I have learned more about the complacency and communication required in relationships from my dogs than I have from people. I have learned more about the possibility for magic and irrationality of survival from the feral cats than I have from television. And I have learned more about the arbitrariness of time and the grief of the sky that carries us forward from the birds of the city than I have from any book. We are talking about feelings, aren't we? The wavering distance between creatures, shall I indulge in the details, a person meets another person, they decide they love each other, this is not simultaneous or immediate, neither is it equivalent, neither is it so different from digging a hole, because in love one sees clearly and one doesn't see at all. When you reenact the moments, do you see a clear and cohesive timeline? Do they move from the space of a void to a space of fullness? Is that how this is supposed to work? Because if you want to ask how is love embodied, felt in the body of a person, in the body of a space, and in the body of time, and if you want to ask how might someone be in front of you, living often there, the precursor and prohibition of freedom, one asks what is the state of a world that runs from friends? But for animals, it isn't so complex. Complexity isn't a virtue. When Benny feels joy, he is joyful. When he feels alone, he is alone. When he feels hunger, he is hungry. These are not such simple equations when we have language and when we see time as moving constantly forward, the burden of progress. We insist on the fact that time is linear, but animals know that it is also cyclical and simultaneous. And for those of us who have quietly suffered trauma and abuse, subtle and quiet and gradual and pounding, we understand that time is both complex and immediate and delayed and deferred and ever-present. And in the fibers of our flesh, we remember pain but not always joy. And grief becomes ordinary and we move on. We keep moving on because that is how we have been trained to survive. Why survival? 
Here are all the bruises and the bodies shoved back and forth without blinking, because in the blinking I have already forgotten, and what I do remember I can own, and memory is not always honest, and words are not always true, but listen, it is the capacity for intimacy that matters. There are so many questions. How is it that animals help us realize our capacity to live? How do we sometimes so easily dismiss encounters with animals and yet others will weigh on our conscience for days? Why do we insist on holding on to our dead pets, collecting their hair, preserving them via taxidermy? How do we communicate so well with animals sometimes when we can hardly speak to other humans? Do we know how much the animals give us without asking for anything in return? Do my dogs love me differently than I love them? How is it that we see so differently? How is it that we exist together? I might admit here that the future I currently fear most is the future without Benny. How might I prescribe language to a wordless relationship, communicate the unique codependency a human shares with a dog, share with someone else the noticing that becomes part of intimacy, yet also communicate that part of what constantly haunts the distance between myself and my pet is also the history of my own ghosts, my own struggle with depression, my own question of why I go on at all. Dear Benny, I want to admit that what I fear most is your death. I don't know how I will survive it, but I don't want to put the burden of my future grief onto you now because I know you will just absorb it and you will just try and take the sadness and lay your head on my stomach. And the look you will give me, that look of, it's okay, mama, will only break my heart again. I want to admit that I fear your death will devastate me even more than the death of my mother, which I am still reliving now as I write this, but that also the devastation I feel daily is part of all this. You, me, our lives in the morning when you wake me up every morning by jumping under the covers or onto my chest. Dear Benny, sometimes when you are sitting in my lap, I hold my breath because the faith I had in the fidelity of your expectations had to do with the faith I had in the fidelity of my own expectations. And I need to believe that there is still another space I am living towards, and I know that you recognize my fear even before I'm aware it exists, and you seem to ask me, Mama, what are you waiting for? And I don't know how to answer that question. Dear Benny, the words so often fail because the distance between words is so different than the distance between bodies. And though I live for the language, I live for your silence even more. Your gestures and your paws and the quick movements of your eyes, of your ears and the darting of your eyes. The point is that emotions are unnameable but still important. And that without words, you understand me better than any human I know precisely because they are unnameable, precisely because they are felt, precisely because you exist. Dear Benny, the point is, I'm not in love now, but I was and I used to be, and the mistakes I made have got to be turned into something other than rage or guilt, and I have to believe that there is a towards ahead of me, but you know that it is its present that is equally important, that in the silent moments I can outlive the expectation of living, and what you give to me I will never be able to repay, and you do not ask me to. You do not ask me to. Dear Benny, I don't yet know how to write about a trauma that is not mine, yet invisibly and with utmost uncertainty, I have inherited its wounds and I keep trying to write about it anyway. My fear is that you have inherited this from me and that my wounds have become your wounds and the wisdom you turn back at me is also a repercussion of my own pain and the pain you have created in yourself and your generosity as a dog lying next to me. The intimacy is all that is needed in order to persist. Dear Benny, it is you, most of all, who has taught me to persist. Thank you.
What a privilege it is to share the skylight space with Harold and Janice and also Eugene, who is not only a brilliant rock star novelist, but also my editor of my debut novel. And so if any of this work you find dazzling, <laughs> he picked it. You're Thank you, Eugene. <laughs> So um, this is Sonata NK. It features a Japanese-American Nisei woman, second generation, who lives in greater Los Angeles. And she has won a lottery of sorts. The prize is to chauffeur a hologram, or a clone, possibly, of Kafka, Franz Kafka, through millennial Los Angeles. So these are her adventures. I should also preface this by saying that I was writing this during a time when I was serving on a faculty senate. And as I transitioned from a, a heavier teaching load towards more administrative and also senate-based load, um, Kafka was a bit of a hologrammatic presence in my life, a custodian of my humor and my sanity as well. So here she is at John Wayne Airport in Orange County. He decided to fly into the regional John Wayne Airport instead of LAX. And uh, she's a little nervous. Nervous about ushering my new client, Kafka San, to his hotel. I arrive 90 minutes early at the regional airport. My foe, Jade Sequin, braided corn husk handbag stuffed with Japanese melon pan in anticipation of hunger pangs from his overseas flight. In what was sort of a lottery for the first 100 survey respondents in Greater Los Angeles, I was chosen to serve as his local interpreter. All the way from Prague, according to his tattered itinerary, which I read at least a dozen times over the last month, Kafka-san, she refers to him as with a deferential son suffix, Kafka-san flies to Frankfurt, then Chicago, then this airport named for a cowboy actor who once lived here, not particularly known for architectural merit. It displays a stark tetrahedral atrium housing a bronze statue of the rangy actor, sporting a 10-gallon hat and spurs, rather garish, although well cast in likeness, in my opinion. Phlegmatic in temper during my third decade, unlike my sanguine uh, girlhood days when I surreptitiously read translations of Freud or Florovsky in French class, I do not mind waiting. Grateful the agent wisely avoided scheduling Kafka-san's flight into the cosmopolitan airport up the freeway in a chronic uncivil state of reconstruction. With his fame, there's a remote chance Kafka-san might be recognized and cause a ruckus. Veritable public fuss and Angelino brouhaha. On the other hand, in the dazzling oblivion of the valley. Kafka-san or not, perhaps no one would bat an eye at a laconic man with a frank-trimmed candor of an actuarial scribe, fatally tubercular, who tragically could not swallow a drop of mineral water at the end of his life. One may not swiftly assume all the dark humor, with the aftertaste of chilled tonic would release its vapors at once, shy as a boy holding a bottle of panic in the ladies' parlor. I stopped by a flower vendor to purchase a bouquet for him. 
Dear reader, if you didn't know already, please forgive me for the oversight. Today is Kafka-san's birthday. With confession, rereading his selected letters, reviewing his itinerary, I proudly prepare for this visit as though I, a woman of modest means, of frugal northeastern taste, pilgrim daughter of post-war Japanese immigrants, or a distant angel waiting in the afterlife. Lilies, I say, please. So this novella is interspersed with little postcard poems. I'm, I'm also actually predominantly a poet. This being my first novel, I had to stick some poems in it as well. And the postcard poems are to Max Broad, um, <laughs> Kafka's now dead buddy. And it, uh, he doesn't realize he's no longer alive, so he's Kafka-san hologram writing to Max on these postcards and their little poems. So here's one of them. On Kafka-san's birthday, dear Max, can you believe it? I made it to my 129th birthday without dying. Nine! If only I were still alive. What a miracle, Max. I don't feel worse than I did yesterday or even last year. For a birthday vacation, I teleported to Los Angeles. What an adventure. I hailed a cab at Irolo near Wilshire and 8th. On July 3rd, 71 degrees. Not so infernal after all, although the smog, a note, tuberculosis. <laughs> so now they're in the car. He's arrived, and they get into her. It's sort of a Prius-y kind of hybrid car. He's never seen one before, of course. And they're speeding along the 55, or it could be the 5, or the 73, or maybe it's even the 10. We cruise northward in my split pea green hybrid, propelled by a new lithium-ion battery and platinum spark plugs, yet more wishfully electric than gas-free. In a future world, it could be an ionic, levitating vehicle, magneto-hydrodynamic. I would float to the touchless car wash, to the glittering nocturnal carnival, anywhere I wish to go. In this retrograde era, it guzzles that obdurate isomer of octane patrol, draining the low fossil fuel reserves of the globe, fractional distillates of rotting mammoth flesh or antediluvian ferns disintegrated long ago. A box of red hachia persimmons sits on the back seat wrapped in newspaper, heartachingly ripe, aflame in their crackling skins. One never witnessed such flaming fruit, not even the gilt-edged salons of Vienna. I hear Kafkasan thinking. Uh, yes, I forgot to carry them into the apartment after my road trip to the open-air farmer's market, and they softened considerably over a few days. Nine. Kafka politely declines the persimmons. Persimmon, says Kafkasan. Persimmon, persifled, perfumery. With a belt crossed over his torso, Kafkasan glares out the window with jawled tension as if he expects a ghoul to rear up and accost us. So the following is a dialogue where Kafkasan has a near panic attack in this Prius. <laughs> Miss K, yes, my father will rear up out of nowhere and hit Das Auto. About a freeway phobia, Mr. Kafka? What should I do? Close your eyes. Where are we going? To a hotel in Los Angeles? Where are we now? Orange County. How long is the freeway? 
miles after this exit. What's so orange about Orange County? Good question, Mr. Kafkasan. Decades ago, orange groves existed in this county. The orange farmers realized it was more profitable to sell their arable land to real estate developers in the post-war industrial boom, so there are no more oranges. None at all? Silence. Where does one buy oranges then? One can go to the farmer's market, yet no more farmers exist. Oranges are imported. Silence. Mr. Kafka, how are you feeling? I see Herman's face. That's Kafka's uh, overbearing, domineering, very nasty father. Where? My father wears up, a buffalo-shouldered man. More likely we'd hit him than he'd hit us. You see, my neurosis is acting up. Close your eyes. Silence. Recite the German alphabet backwards. Z is for Zeitung. Y is for Yachten. X is for Xylophone. Okay, so I'll read a little postcard poem to Max. This is Kafka's son. They, they're passing through K-Town. And Kafka was a foodie, as we know from his diaries and letters, and um, realizes that they don't take cash here. There's something called credit. So Kafka's son in K-Town. As a gift to myself, I stood outside a Koreatown bakery, gazed at the buttercream cakes and swirled green tea custard until my tongue went dry. Then I realized I had no credit. America is no longer cash. Max, a huge favor. Would you please wire $100 into my checking account? This way, I can open a line of credit and start paying back my life loan I owe you in eternity my heartfelt thanks. So I'll skip over here now to my satire of Los Angeles. And uh, go to this first person monologue where the protagonist, Miss Kay, is um, talking about how she ended up in California as a transplant from New England. As I drive against the direction of windblown palm trees on the Santa Monica freeway to pick up Kafka-san from his meeting, he had a meeting with some studio biggies on Wilshire Boulevard who think that he wrote a screenplay which was actually written by a Chinese avant-garde playwright. Big confusion. I reflect on the serendipity of winning with the euphoria of a lottery winner, in a sense, as the first of 100 respondents to complete a survey on a mass online open course about Kafka with a virtual hotel staffed by concierges, bellhops, and the like. The course hasn't been offered yet. The for-profit education consulting company is still in the information gathering stage, gauging niche market interest in the local Angeleno populace. The university under question would love to enroll for free up to 30,000 students. I had no first-hand knowledge of mass open courses, one among hundreds of nonprofit campuses moving in a similar trend. How is it possible to learn actively in a passive one-way environment? More brand recognition, more bread, more fewer jobs is one way I look at it. Perhaps a brand will proliferate with the bread or vice versa but I doubt it will translate into meaningful quality. As you already know, my name is Kay. Over three decades ago, 
although at times it seems only yesterday, I was born and raised in Pilgrim Woodsy, New England, then moved to Northern California, the Bay Area of the late 90s to be exact. I read a Kafka letter, a broadside standing in one of the bookstores, either the sophisticated and eclectic Black Ash Books on Ashby, where the bookstore owner lovingly polished the maple-colored shelves with a concoction of soda, cider vinegar, and lemon oil on chamois, or Joe's Hat, a dusty bay leaf adorned four-level shop on Telegraph. You'll recognize those as black oak books and most, right? Then I picked up a $14 anthology of Kafka's letters and read it front to cover. And so this was how fate would have it that I, an American-born Japanese woman named Kay, was assigned to escort Kafka throughout Los Angeles. I am also his interpreter. I take the surprise, although it is not yet officially salaried in light of a promised stipend, Quite seriously, my professional aim in the role of an interpreter is to render my presence and movements as transparent as possible so Kafka-san's interactions and his Los Angeles experience in general flow seamlessly. To be invisible as his interpreter, my polyglot tongue is a natural apparatus, if you will, fluid in a complex field of semantics. However, I find that my presence, not my absence, is inevitable, not perfectly fluent. I am not a glass woman. My tongue does not flow without ripples, splashes, or interruptions from the sparkling hemispheres of translingual exchange. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Um, if you forgot the name, it's called Sonata in K. It's a terrific book. Uh, not only is it an homage to Kafka, but as you heard, it's this uh, uh, critique, not exactly full love letter to LA, but definitely attention-laden, um, beautifully written novel about LA and Kafka. So there's a few copies. You should try to pick it up. And I'm very honored to read here. Uh, thanks to Vanessa and Skylight, and thanks very much to Harold and Janice. Um, it's exciting to be here. I'm going to read you two little bits from this novel called Dear Cyborgs. Um, the frame story of it concerns two um, Asian-American boys growing up in the Midwest, and their uh, kind of their the dissolution of their friendship. And so I'm going to read the beginning of that story. Um, it, the, this kind of belies the left turns the book takes later. But um, to discover those turns, you'll, you'll have to pick up the book. So here's the beginning um, of the novel. Or, origin stories. This is in Ohio. We were 11, 12 years old. And the teacher asked us to name the number of siblings we had. One, most said, or two, zero, a few said. I said one. Vu said nine. I burst out laughing because I'd been over to Vu's house a lot, had read comic books on his bed and kicked the soccer ball in his backyard, and had even eaten his mom's grilled cheese sandwiches. I'd never once seen the rustle of a brother-like or sister-like figment ever, and so thought he was mocking the teacher. But Mrs. Clyde just moved on, and no one added anything else, and Vu didn't make any adjustments to his claim. When I asked him about this later, he just shrugged and said it was true, though he added three or half. 
I didn't know how to pursue it and so let it drop and almost forgot about it entirely except once in a while it would occur to me again and I would stop suddenly in the middle of something and say to myself, Vu has nine invisible siblings. And I did this years and years later, long after Vu had died, and even then I found myself out of nowhere thinking, somewhere in the world are Vu's nine siblings, and I'll never know them. After doing it for some time, for years and decades, the habit of protest becomes something else, something apart from, almost irrelevant to, one's initial desires. It becomes, to say it simply, a way of life. Or, to be more accurate, if less simple, one's initial ambitions regress into merely a way of living. Especially this is true if one is clever enough, or lucky enough, or cowardly enough. Let's just say lucky. Especially when one is lucky enough not to have been crushed. And, this is the important qualifier, it must also be said that the methods of protest one has chosen, if one after time is not crushed, that these methods of protest must have been entirely pathetic. I met Vu in a dream, or rather I met him during a time of my life so separated from what happened before and later that I think of it as a dream. Most people must feel that childhood is that way, scenes that are familiar but irretrievable, a hazy dream, but I think those years in Ohio are for me a bit further removed than is typical. I'll try to explain. My father was trained as an engineer, but he worked sporadically. He had a thin skin, was a binge drinker, and had a bad temper a result of which was that he kept getting fired, and so the family kept moving. My memory of childhood, therefore, before landing in that small town where I met Vu, is less a blur than a handful of orphan film clips. Too short and too few in number to add up to much. I remember only strange bits. The taste of dark chocolate in a neighbor's Oldsmobile, pink lotion on a girl's sunburn, a teacher's stare marked with hatred, a cut to my finger with my mother's razor, bits with no story to them but my name. And then at 15, we moved again to Chicago, and those small-town years got overwhelmed and momentarily erased by the seizures of adolescence and an immediate addiction to the convulsions of a city. And so in this analysis, there is this bubble, an in-between time, 11 to 15, where I'm not quite a child and yet not, and yet not an adult, where I now think, despite my feelings then of slow death through intricate paroxysms of boredom, I was nonetheless safe. And I knew I was safe, deep in my heart, perhaps crucially because I knew I didn't matter, because we were invisible, insignificant outsiders. And my focus during this time of boyhood was Vu, whom I worshipped in a way I think not uncommon in boys of that age. I obsessed without acknowledging it, but nonetheless with an open and even heady kind of love. He introduced me to comic books. This, not incidentally, was also an introduction to sex and therefore adulthood, because we would gaze intently at, those, at these idealized images, these cartoons of adult men and women in various forms of wish fulfillment or wish embroidering in swift, balletic action that echoed and manifested and were the seeds of our own desires. Here's one lesson that Vu taught me. It maybe doesn't seem on the surface to be about comic books, but it is. At least if reading comic books was a sort of hedonistic, perhaps onanistic, act of defiance. And if one believes that such pursuits are coterminous with living. I'd gotten permission to spend the night at Vu's house. We would watch TV and read comic books and listen to music and talk. His mom ordered us a pizza, but other than that, we didn't see her. His father was never at home, and his mom kept her room, so we had the run of their large and, from my point of view, deliciously shabby home. My own home, thanks to the rule of my father, in addition to the compulsions of my mother, was unforgiving in its order and cleanliness. It gleamed and was breathless and without beauty. 
So I first was shocked and then bewitched by the mess at the Wynn home and shamefully misread its untidiness as entirely debauched, so I once flung my pizza crust at the TV, which, to my confusion, appalled and enraged Vu. And in the mornings, when Vu woke up, instead of going directly to the bathroom or kitchen to do the various rituals required to begin the day, he would lazily pick through his comics and read one in bed. That was the revelation, that he could do this, that he was allowed to do it, that he had even conceived of it. It had, in other words, never occurred to me at the age of 14 that the lounging, pajama-related activity one did in the evenings after one's so-called homework and chores were done, these could be done first thing in the morning, at the very start of the day, or really, and the extrapolation was immediately clear, one could do it whenever one wanted. I was made suddenly to re- I was made suddenly to realize Vu in his home taught this to me that we were more animal than routine. However, there is a sliver of protest still possible, which you might rightfully accuse of being worse, a reactionary or collaborative tactic, but which nonetheless is a method I have come to subscribe to and furthermore think is the only possible defiance left outside of the terminal possibilities of suicide, the morally corrupting option of guerrilla warfare, or the subtly but fundamentally distinct choice of utter acquiescence. This alone possible and admittedly vaporous defiance is merely to live and accept one's culpability, but to try without going into heroics to participate minimally, as a parasite does, getting one's needs and not much more, not often much more. One tries then to touch only lightly the general degradation, but also to become no longer concerned with it. One becomes accepting of powerlessness, is rendered complacent and mute, but tries nonetheless to single to other like-minded parasites, not in order to gather and foment rebellion, which would be too grandiose a goal, but simply so as to provide reflection, the mirage or actuality of company, that is, simply to make known one's kind's existence as a remaining possibility. In the end, this contemptible character I've sketched, the artist, is all that remains of the initial quest for purity. So that's the beginning of the book. Um, there are um, uh, these friends. The story of their friendship continues throughout the novel, um, but the, a large part of the book is um, where a bunch of superheroes uh, get together and have coffee or talk. Um, it's not that important that they're superheroes. It's kind of like their day job. And in this scene, um, and they, and a lot of the book is monologues. Uh, the structure of the book is monologues in the sense a character comes on stage and, and tells a long story, and then she or he fades out, and then someone else comes on the stage and tells a long story. And so these are a bunch of superheroes in a karaoke bar to, uh, telling each other's stories. Here's one of them. Uh, this guy is named Dave. <clears throat> Dave said... I'd met this guy at a bar who happened to be a night guard at the Frick Museum. And he said he could, since he knew I was a painter, only a Sunday painter, I'd said, whatever this guy'd said. If I was interested, he'd let me into the museum after hours. So he set it up, Dave continued, somehow with his bosses. He was a gregarious guy who was difficult to say no to, and so one night after closing, I met him at the museum around 10 o'clock, and he gave me the run of the place. Henry Clay Frick, the man who had collected all these works by Durer and by Delacroix, these paintings by Watteau and Kirchner, at the time he had collected them was dubbed the most hated man in America, for he was a vicious capitalist. And it would be as if Dick Cheney and Jeffrey Skilling and the Koch brothers were one man and had, been, and had begun collecting all the Donald Judds and Robert Smithsons and all the Joan Mitchells and Julie Morettus and all the Joanne Greenbaums and Paul Chans as a historical machine, a timeless massager of their reputations, 
So that instead of a villainous and rapacious, murderous bigotry and egotism, we instead only remember dimly this rough history, seen through a glass darkly, and it is as if we were blinkered and blinded by these beautiful and profound works of art placed before our eyes to shield these evil men of power from true and righteous judgment, and to shield us too from the wearisome task of carrying out that judgment. See, I'm winded just saying so. <laughs> and so I was ecstatic to be allowed into the museum, this mansion, at night, where I could roam its halls and peer at, this paint, at these paintings as if I owned them myself, or even more as if I were in some cosmic dance with them, some intimate relationship with these 19th century masterpieces, these works by Fragonard and Whistler, these works by Vermeer and Constable, by Goya and Titian, by El Greco and Eng. And it was initially a sublime, sweet, and slow walk through its intimate galleries and down its halls, the museum at night. But after a few hours of this, after living out the fantasy of being alone with these paintings, I realized there was something immensely lonely about the experience, or that it was something so ecstatic it had to be savored jointly with some other soul or souls, or else the solitude would ruin the taste, would transform the sweet into bitter, the wine into vinegar. So I left the museum, came out into the cool night, and walked for hours and hours digesting what I had seen, my mind overrun and seized with both beauty and sadness. At dawn, I came up with a plan. This was, I recognized, a high point in my life. I couldn't just leave it, which I now realize was perhaps unwise. And I thought, I have to do it again. But this time, I have to bring somebody else. And so I invited this woman I knew. She happened to be an art critic. Actually, she was an arts blogger. Well, in actual fact, she was a data analyst at a corporation and, worked, and she worked 80 hours a week building profiles of you and me and everyone else we know so that targeted messages would have us buy just the right moment, just the right brand of diaper or automobile or colonoscopy. For her tireless efforts, she was paid huge sums with which she bought the combination of Xanax and marijuana and cocaine and vodka that <laughs> helped to ease her often ruffled psyche. But in a previous incarnation, she had held down waitressing and dog-walking jobs so that she could get through an MFA in studio art in, quote, <laughs> multimedia, which she claimed was a vocation, and this turned out to be true, for which she had no calling. However, these days, on the side, because she was immensely talented and energetic, which was why I was drawn to her, she contributed, under pseudonym, to one of the city's more widely read art blogs. She made it a point to spend all of her scarce free time going to galleries. In fact, this was where I'd met her, standing in front of a painting we both happened to admire. We casually exchanged comments, mesmerizing, so beautiful, makes it look easy. And that was that. But then her face popped up several weeks later on OkCupid. <laughs> so, after a month... After my first visit to the Frick, my friend quite generously arranged for it to happen again, except this time I was bringing along a date. At first it was just as before, but better, because it was still a fantastic privilege to walk that space and live for a few hours with those paintings in a bubble of private intimacy. But it was even better, because one could share that wonder with another person, and so that wonder, that ecstasy, the joy, became reflected and built up by some harmonic into a golden, gonging mutual pleasure. But she kept talking. She talked the entire time. And it wasn't that what she was saying was so wrong or so pedantic or so pandering or so not up to the moment. These things were true. But they were true about what I was saying also. And I, too, was talking the whole time. 
We were commenting on our experience, and the exegesis which was necessary to make the sublime more human, more touchable, turned out to be the thing that tarnished it irreparably, secularized it if not made it profane, and so turned the transcendent ritual into a bauble of anecdote. Fucked alone, and if not alone, likewise fucked, concluded Dave. Thank you. So um, it was really great reading with uh, these incredible uh, local writers. And uh, we have time, I think, for questions, should there be any. And then uh, maybe there'll be a signing afterwards. Am I doing this? OK. <laughs> I have two questions I'd like to curate. I'm going to start with the one that I probably have less feeling for. And you can come back to me if there's time. Um, so um, that's when I was listening to you, and you know, I hate it when people say, like, and put your questions in the form of a question, because you absolutely know how someone's going to answer. Everybody knows how you're never going to learn anything. So I'm just going to give you sort of an impressionistic riff of what I'm thinking, and maybe you can direct me to a territory that we can discover together. You can send me back a melody where I'll actually learn something. Because I'm, uh, I'm absorbing your narration, and I'm thinking to myself, boy, this is like back up a little bit. Pinter uses words that way. Even Didion goes from surface into meditation. It's, a tra it's trauma. You know, he's narrating trauma. He's he's getting at um, a really um, finite psychological state. And um, but I'm not quite sure what he's doing. Maybe he's autistic. So you know, I'm, I'm rifling through all these kinds of ways to apprehend. I'm really interested in what you're doing. Um, and because. I felt like it had, it, it resonated with writing I'd heard before. There's something about the repetitive words and the rhythm. You know, I'm just wondering if there were influences there. Maybe you could just riff or talk a little bit about what you're doing because it was really interesting. Right. Thank, you. Yeah. Thank you. I like what you said better oh. than, what I, than I could say this. But what was the phrase you used? The, but the, the phrase was fine, gets to a fine, the trauma, and then gets to a fine, I don't, I don't remember what the, the phrase yeah. you used. Speaking about a finite psychological state, I really right. felt we were in a realm that we all experience, but writers have yet to articulate for mm. us. And so that's very exciting work to me. And, um, and because it's new and fresh at that uh, experimental level, I think it's really good to hear you know, someone riff and you know, not to focus them on answering them like a club on top of their head mm -hmm. and you know, answer this question. But you know, maybe there's some melody that strikes you that you can send back yeah. to me so I can yeah, well, I think that I think that's that's the part that that resonated with me in your comments is 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 um, the fine. What did it say one more time? Fine. The fine state, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, well, that is. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm trying to process what you you said about that. So the the trauma the trauma part is is there. There's um, there's multiple influences. Um, one of the primary influences that you didn't mention was um, was was really the, the French new novel, and so in some ways, you know, um, not you know. You know, um, an atmospheric influence would have been one of them, and I, I used to kind of think of it as a new, new novel in some ways. And I also kind of, um, in writing it, tried to imagine what it would be like to um, actually write the book as if it were, 
you know subtitles in some ways too. So there's a little bit of a little bit of that, you know, a little bit of that of that distance um, to it language-wise. Um, otherwise, the trauma part is 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 very present. It's about multiple levels of of how the world ends, both um, individual worlds and and maybe global worlds, and then and culpability within that by the people who actually perpetrate like the end, the end of the world or the end of their own worlds. So. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. I have another question. This is a question for you, Jeans. Um, now, it, it wasn't in the, uh, well, maybe it was in the portions that you read just now, but in, in the novel, there are some references to protest as a kind of ritual, like a spiritual ritual. And I was just wondering if you could if you would want to, to say a little bit more about that, and maybe in reference to the characters, which, as you mentioned, there's kind of numerous protagonists, if you will, in the book, and sort of, when I read it, I felt like um, there's a kind of desolation in them and around them in the world, and they're trying to kind of find a way to fix things. But interestingly, I, if, if I'm not recalling you correctly, none of them kind of turn to sort of spiritual practice as a way of doing that. And I, I was just wondering if you could comment on that. Um, I'll use the mic because I'm soft-spoken. But the, um, the book's about, thanks for the question, Eva. <laughs> the book's about, uh, the, the main theme is probably the impossibility or the possibility of protest. So protest comes up a lot, and there are lots of historical references for different kinds of protest, whether it's um, South Korean labor protesters or uh, Occupy or May 68. Um, there are different kind of forms of protest. And so I think the book was written in this moment where um, uh, protest felt important, like the the impulse to protest felt important. At the sim and simultaneously, it felt hopeless. So that kind of contradiction or cognitive dissonance, or uh, the paradox, was was at the heart of the book. Um, and I don't know if and there's a there are a couple lines in the book. One of them is uh, where you know everything seems impossible, but even kind of in a uh, solipsistic world, a person can be. A person can choose to be moral, uh, you know. Even if there there's nothing that they can do, uh, they can they can make a choice. And the way this comes out is there's this parable that I learned in a very blunted kind of way, but is was based on this naturalist named Lauren Isley, uh, who wrote um, I think primarily in the 70s and 80s. But he's um, he's he has a kind of, I would say a slightly old fashioned style, but it's a broke style. It's a beautiful style um, if you're into it. And he has this parable, and it's probably his most famous essay called the star thrower um, and uh, the the story goes I'll try to tell quickly the story goes is a, as a person in a deep spiritual funk uh, maybe in this kind of similar moment where you know he doesn't know what to do um, he wants to do something but he doesn't seem but nothing seems possible um, and he's and he's in his spiritual malaise he's walking uh, on this beach in this place where it's kind of a it's kind of a weird um uh, resort destination, it seems, from the essay, where um, 
a practice there is the sea life gets strewn by the by the uh, ocean onto the beach, and the tourists collect the sea life, and uh, it's fresh, so they they eat it in like a, some kind of seafood stew or whatever. Um, but he's he's and this is the tradition in this particular space, um, and he's walking the beach early in the morning, totally for ignoring this this uh, touristic. Uh, uh, collecting or uh, activity. He's just walking and he's depressed and he sees this guy and this guy is throwing fish, starfish, back into the ocean and uh, and it, it boggles his mind. Why in the face of this holocaust is he is he doing that? What difference does it make? And so he sees this guy and he sees and he, he actually approaches him and he goes, why bother? Uh, what difference could it make? And then he, as he's, he doesn't stop. He just keeps throwing fish. And then, in the middle, after throw, he says, in the version I saw, I heard, he goes, "Well, it made a difference to that one." And so, in some ways, this could be a simple uh, tale, a moral tale, uh, that reduces the world into into uh, an understandable bit. But for me, it helps because it simplifies. Um, moral action a little bit, that you can act on what you see in front of you and try to do the good that you can see right right in front of you. Now, it's, it's, um, it's not always helpful, but sometimes it's helpful to see through the world very simply. What can I do to help? How can I... Um, uh, it made a difference for in, in, this, in this moment. Um, so that is the closest that a character gets, I think, to kind of a spiritual solution or a possibility. There are different characters and different political figures in the book that have their own resolution or their own kind of continual moment of um, of conflict around this question of possibility. How do I act? Um, but that's kind of the closest moment they get to clarity or the fallback towards the spiritual position. It's not um, necessarily fully convincing, but it's it's there for the moment. So. Um, yeah, that's almost rabbinic and how wise that is. And it reminds me of communicate that very funny part. But she kept talking. You know, in your what you just read, that was where as we exploded over here in like a contingent of like absolute you know, solidarity. We've been in that New York Frick Museum with that guard. Um, and I always look up words all the time in simple words because they ghost their meanings up because we're in such intense history right now. And communicate, I looked it up recently, it's to commune. Mm. And that implies something beyond words. And what you said was so beautiful in your novel because you lose that when people talk sometimes. And I think that for you to ground us in these very beautiful facts of survival, uh, it's very graceful work. And I don't but I have to ask you, my question is for you, because this was one of the most moving essays I've ever heard. And it reminded me of Roxane Gay. I just read Hunger. And at the end, I think the most beautiful paragraph I've ever written is at the end of that book. She talks about all these tremendous things in her life and all the things she's contingent on. And she says, yes, this happened. And I'm wondering, in the manifesto style of your writing, if you began with the idea of creating a hurdle with your work to overcome a circumstance, if you were possibly moved by the creature and his true resonance in the world, I'm wondering where the drive to write, because the piece was so deeply moving. What is your name? Janice. And your last name? Lee. 
and your book? Uh, the Sky is the, the most recent one. I, I found that amazing, amazing work that you read to us, just absolutely brilliant and phenomenal. I just have to give you incredible praise. And because it so moved me on such a deep level, I'm wondering, and because of the manifesto style and the, the motor and the engine behind it, I just, I felt I needed to know what the impetus, what was it you started out with, what was what drove you to it, and what was the, uh, you know, what was the, uh, the gear in the universe that get, got that going? Um, well, first of all, thank you. Um, the essay I wrote um, in response to a panel that I was giving actually a few months ago, and the topic was on interspecies communication. Um, and I was thinking a lot about what I should write. Um, I'm fascinated by animals and interspecies communication in general, but at the time that I was trying to write this essay, uh, frankly, I was just experiencing a lot of pain um, and a lot of a lot of things were happening, and so uh, the thing that kept coming up was my relationship with my dog, which felt like the most honest thing to write about, rather than to uh, write about some of the other things I'd been writing about in my novel, um, other other things. So that was sort of the thing that kept coming up. Um, and really, I just sat down to try and write. And so the reason why it feels like there's a hurdle is because when I was writing the essay, I was pretending like I was going to write about something else, but I kept, I ended up writing about my dog. That's not where the intent started, um, but that's part of what's happening in the essay is also uh, enacting what I was actually feeling when I was trying to write the essay. It was sort of being in denial about what I was really, what my real fears were at the time. So the whole discovery of what, work and the fact that you may not start out knowing what you're writing and you end up with this beautiful thing, which Roxanne Gay did in her memoir, which you did with that beautiful essay. Are you writing to convince yourself to live? Um, I don't know if I can sum it up in that way. Um, but I think a lot of the writing is enacting um, why it is that we live. I think what we what we talk about when we're writing uh, is linked to what the living is. Right? There's a relationship to living and language, um, and there's a relationship to how we live and how we use language. And I think all of that gets enacted uh, whenever anyone sits down and writes, uh, whether it comes out in a story or an essay or a poem. I'm so determined to so the manifesto style, the engine that builds and builds and builds is not trying to win an argument or trying to... I don't believe in essays trying to win arguments. Right. Yeah, and I wouldn't describe it as a manifesto at, at all. Um, but I think that the essay is sort of a useful form um, in terms of thinking about the essay and like the original definition that the French used it as. It's there's there is no argument. The whole point of an essay is to just try something out, and so that in the writing of the essay you figure out what it is um, that you're thinking about. And that's how I think about essays. I don't start out with thinking that this is going to be the end of my essay. I just stop writing when I stop writing. So hopefully, yes. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, so I'm really interested in Harold in like the little skips and details that you have in your writing, and I'm wondering if you feel like like the details that could go either way are they important details or are they unimportant details or is it the wrong question? Like, well, is your mind trying to, or the characters' minds trying to figure out, like if I just take it. 
think, I mean, I think the answer is, um, is both, you know, so it depends on the point of view. <laughs> yeah, so there are important details that um, are kind of terribly important, um, and vice versa. You know, our city, we have very important details that are terribly important. I have, a, I have a question for Karen. That's okay. Do we have time? Yes, sir. Um, I have a physical, but one, the, one of the things that was really striking, I've, I've had this really, um, this interest in characters kind of constructed out of, out of texts. So, and then lo and behold, when I read your book, here's Kafka, who's the, the holographic. Kafka is actually constructed out of, you know, everything you know about Kafka, if you're a Kafka fan, right? So it's the letters and, and parables and, so, so this textual version of Kafka, there's a hologram, and there's everything you think about, you know, everything you think you know about Kafka is then embedded in Los Angeles, but the Los Angeles you depict is actually not the Los Angeles that everybody outside of Los Angeles actually knows, which is the textual Los Angeles, and, and is weirdly absorbed in this, this really expansive, you know, detailed Los Angeles, and it's really, I mean, I was really kind of just, just you know, amazed by the, by the you know, between those two things that we talk about. Oh, well, okay. I being soft-spoken as well will use the mic. So um, Harold is asking about, or asking me to contemplate aloud the textual reconstruction of, of Kafka as Kafka-san. And um, I guess it's a pixelated textual Baudrillardian moment of a desert Los Angeles. And um, sort of using Kafka as a projection or a filter for my own sort of estranging experiences working with featureless bureaucracy and, you know, sitting in interminable meetings where agendas are being rearranged and debated and there's an, an elephant in the room. In this case, I borrowed um, the Chinese avant-garde playwrights, Rhinoceros, play, um, which has been um, produced quite widely in China. And so instead of rhinoceros, I mean, instead of elephant, I displace that with rhinoceros. <laughs> and so there, there's a lot of play going on here in terms of representation, uh, meaning detached from meaning, and then surfaces at play as well. So I think textural surface and play, and Los Angeles being a sort of locus of that, um, it's it's um, constantly changing. It's you know apocalyptic, but has been here for a long time, and you know was a desert and irrigated, and there's stolen water. <laughs> there's there's a lot going on here in Los Angeles. Underground aquifers, Los Angeles River. That's not really a river like the Mississippi River. <laughs> So um, a lot of mythologies, too, daily mythologies, Kafka-esque little mythologies embedded in this sort of surreal, absurdist, millennial, yet also 80s retro city that we live in. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> I'll, ask, I'll ask a question to Karen, another question to Karen. Sure. Um, the, so in her book, the LA is, is prominent as you can tell, but the other thing is that the, that is 
comes across is there's an incredible textural richness. Like she's great with food, and she's she's exceptional with food writing actually, and with little details about the city, about L.A. Um, could you talk either about your interest in food or talk about what, how you choose um, particular aspects, what draws you to, because it's not just f good food writing, it's like good poetic linguistic food writing, like there's a choice in how she writes a food that's very language based. Do you have any thoughts about that or how those choices come to be? Sure, I have a secret vice. I enjoy reading cookbooks. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, being a foodie, yes, um, I was delighted when I discovered that Kafka was also sort of a, a foodie. So when you read his diaries and his letters, he can go into detail about the foods that he is eating at the cafe at the moment. While he's worried that the cream might give him indigestion and gives reasons for why he's become vegetarian and cannot eat the seafood or the pork or the whatever, whatever. I mean, he's also Jewish, so he went pork. So. Um, I, that was something that gave me comfort and also admiration that he would write about such things that are concrete, tangible, sensual, and in detail, and also be very, very smart. You know, it made me feel okay to like reading cookbooks and enjoy being a foodie. My friends say I'm a foodie. I tend not to call myself a foodie because that seems to imply that I know a lot about cuisine or, you know, go to a lot of restaurants. And in fact, I just really like um, reading recipes and then looking at how cookbooks are designed. And I'm also interested in uh, literary types who enjoy baking. So, you know, the Bevan Dub and To the Lighthouse, Mrs. Ramsey, and Emily Dickinson's Black Spice Cake and sorts of things. And it's, uh, if you teach food recipes, literary recipes, are also a very accessible entry point to your general education literature classes. If you teach Emily Dickinson or Virginia Woolf, for instance, or Franz Kafka. Thank you. Um, any last questions? I have one. There's a gentleman back there. I just, it wasn't a question. I just wanted to say thank you to all you guys. Your guys' readings were excellent. You guys write very well, and it was great to hear your guys' perspectives. Thank you, Marquise. Marquise is a spoken word poet. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.